name is James, one of the River team members here at the, I said River already, the River Church of the South Bay. And we're, we're, we're going to continue this series we've been doing where we've been like entering into the Museum of the New Testament and kind of exploring wings of it that are often unoccupied. Those, those corners of the museum that don't get all the foot traffic that you might forget unless you really look for them. And we've been kind of encouraging all of us along to say, let's sit down on a nice comfortable chair right in front of this portrait of a oft forgotten character and let's learn something. Let's reflect. Let's open up the rib cage of our souls. I don't think souls have a rib cage, it's a metaphor. Let's open up the rib cage of our souls and let's allow God to rearrange some of the furniture right the, inside there. So there's a good mixed metaphor. That's what we're doing. That's what this whole series has been about. And it's been pretty exciting. And this morning, we're going to enter into the wing of the museum, Mark's biography of Jesus, the earliest uh, biography of Jesus's life in our New Testament. And we're going to actually look at a character, uh, like a super genius, a super Jesus-following faith genius who is totally unlikely. And, th and we're also along the way going to watch a few of the honor roll students, the ones that were like, they put their hand up when the teacher says, uh, when the teacher forgets to assign homework. They're the ones that raise their hand and go, wait a minute. Well, you didn't give us our homework yet. And the rest of the class is like, really? We're going to look at a few of these people and, and kind of just notice the contrast that I think Mark, in his epic storytelling of Jesus, his inspired storytelling of Jesus, a contrast I think he's making. And he's just allowing us to behold. So that's, that's kind of the plan today. I want to start with a question and a story because that's how I roll. Have you ever been totally out of the loop of something going on around you like that other people knew what was happening? You're out of the loop completely. One of the reasons my heart always beats for Luke and Brittany as a couple is because I was a youth pastor for eight years of my young life in my late teens and early 20s. And for some reason, in those moments, I was always the guy, if there was a pool, I'd be pushed into it. Someone would just like, they plot against me and they push me in. That's why I'm such a bitter person these days, right? I, I'm always the person that some prank's going to happen to if a prank's going to go down. Because back in the late 90s and early 2000s, that was kind of a thing. I don't know if pranking still exists, but it was a deal. And, and so this, the, the ultimate moment of me being out of the loop we were heading up to like a youth specialties conference, which was a big youth conference. And we had our whole team. I was a uh, pastor at a church in Manhattan Beach at the time, and a uh, youth pastor. And we're heading up, and we stop at like a Mimi's Cafe. I don't know if it was Mimi's, but it's one of those your grandma takes you to. You know what? Remember those memories? Like, where, Grandma, where do you want to eat? It's somewhere like that, right? Dim lighting, kind of smells the same. There's always pot pie, like pot pie. It's a really big deal in these places. And so we're at this like Mimi's Cafe. And it was back in the day where they would, like, wheel out the dessert cart. I don't think they do that anymore. It's not just a COVID thing. I don't think they do that at all anymore. But they used to have, like, the, the dessert cart, and they wheel it out, right? And, and the dessert cart is made of, like, fake desserts. And the fake desserts are made of, like, lard, I believe. And you could pick out your dessert. It's really efficient. All right? And then they go back. And, and so it's dessert time. I'm kind of at the end of the table and I picked my dessert, it's a cheesecake. I'm like, could you put some extra whipped cream on that? I would be so excited. And I was in my early 20s, I could eat what I want. And so I got the cheesecake. And, and everyone at the table, oh great, great, great. They all order their thing and then they leave. And then all of a sudden, 
the server, she comes back and she hands me my cheesecake first. And it's got the whipped cream on it. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. And I'll wait for everyone else. And everyone goes, no, 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 you go. We want to, let's get a picture of you eating this. And I'm just like, like a narcissist. So I'm like, this is great. Now I'm getting a picture taken of me and I'm eating my dessert first. I'm like, come on. All right. I, I go to get a scoop. Like, no, no, get a big bite, like a really big one. So I'm like, I got a bunch of whipped cream and a massive chunk of that cheesecake. And they're all watching. And all of a sudden I start noticing like the manager is walking over. Other servers from other tables are walking over. And I just think it's my magnetic personality. People are interested in what's happening with this dynamic young 19 year old. And so I'm there, I'm ready to go. And I take a giant bite of it. And like I taste the sweetness of whipped cream and then like a foul, foul, awful taste of pure lard in my mouth. So what they had done is they had switched out. They had somehow bribed the server to actually give me the actual dessert like fake dessert thing that you pick from and serving that to me. Needless to say, I think that has like a half-life of 10,000 years, so it's still in here somewhere. It's still working its way through my system. Like, but you're totally out of the loop until your senses just shock you, shock you back into the moment, and suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, now I get what was going on. I was kind of out of the loop of this deal. And so, uh, Mark is this great story storyteller. And we have to remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We have these four biographies of Jesus' life. The ancient biographies, we call them gospels. They called them gospels. Good news stories of Jesus' life. We have four of them. Why four? Because it seems that the early Christians really wanted perspectives on Jesus' life. They wanted, if you think of it like director's cuts or like if you look at a documentary, you're not just watching raw security camera footage of stuff happening. You're, there's music incorporated. There's edits. There's a certain angle that's being taken on the story that's true. We will believe and affirm it's true. I believe it, it's historically reliable, but it's an angle and artistic telling of a story. And Mark plays with this really cool motif of those in the know and those who don't know. Those who know and those who don't know. Those who are in on it and those who are kind of out of the loop, confused, or even opposed to something special. So Mark chapter 1. Anyone want to read to me Mark 1.1? One, one? Who would read to me Mark 1.1? One, one? If you dare, Mark 1.1. One, one. And Luke, you could do it in the Greek if you want. I'll allow it. Mark 1.1. One, one. Anyone just belt it out. Like, just... Just belted. I think David. David's ready to go, dude. David is locked and stocked. Here we go. Mark one one. As loud as you possibly can, because, or come up here. Run up here, Mark. Mark. While you read, Mark David, with your Patreon. I love these shorts. These are like the greatest. Okay. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was beautiful. That was really. Why can't you be the Bible guy on the app? You know how the Bible guy's voice on the app is always kind of creepy? And then the Lord spake. And you're like, man, I'm encouraged by the word of God, but I'm a little bit scared to meet this guy. You should be doing that. So the beginning of the gospel, not of Mark, notice. The gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, so the. The cool part about Mark, and in my classroom, I always play this game where students have already read all of Mark, and they come to class, and I, I, do the, I take the first 10 minutes, and I say, who are the first people to know about Jesus' true identity? Who are the first people to know about it? And they're like, oh, John the Baptist. I'm like, nope. 
Like, oh, the demons? Because some of the impure spirits recognize him as the son of God. Nope. And John the, the, I already said John the Baptist. The disciples, they're like, they're kind of throwing out ideas, and I just may, I belittle them. My goal in the classroom is to belittle the students so that they will learn and submit to my will. No, like, I just, 20 minutes I'll go, 10 minutes sometimes. And then I will say, the first people who actually recognize Jesus's messianic, that means he is a son of God, agent of God, special mission from God, God with us, the first people to recognize it are you, the reading audience. Mark actually lets you in on it immediately. This is a story about Jesus Christ, is not his last name, it is his title, is Jesus, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so it's kind of like watching one of those Marvel origin stories where you know the character has gotten their powers, but no one else knows it yet. And they're always like in an alley somewhere. And then there's some, someone with leather jackets like, hey, give me your money. And you're like, oh, baby, this is going to be good. Or the epic Spider-Man moments where the school bully comes and picks on him. And like, oh, no, 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 no. He's got superpowers now. This is going to be so good. And we love those scenes. We just get pumped, right? We know we're in on it. And those people are about to be in on it. So this is the way Mark's telling the story. So right off the bat, he's bringing you along to say, now come with me, you know who he is, I know who he is, and let's watch and see those that get him and those that don't. And then he kind of stacks it in a couple categories. And I'm not, I told myself, last time I preached two weeks ago, it was a 25-minute message, the shortest message I've ever preached. Mark your calendars, celebrate that in memoriam every year. For the last time, I'll preach that short, but I'm going for it again. I'm going to try to be efficient here because my kids are in the audience, and I want the audience. You're not an audience. You're a family. The kids are here, and I want to make sure they're engaged the whole time. Why did I say that? It took up two minutes. But I, won't, I would go through all the texts of Scripture and, and kind of introduce you to the people. But I'm going to give them to you straight up that I'm going to read two passages, and then I'm going to close. There's a group of people that are totally out of the loop. But they're kind of the honor roll students. Like I said, they're the ones that are wearing the Harvard t-shirts in second grade, walking around, doing extra credit for fun. On long car rides, they're doing math puzzles, right? These are the kids that you're like, they really should get it. Now this group called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they truly are folks that are well-trained, well-equipped, well-positioned to be the smart kids. And instead of recognizing Jesus for who he is, they throw up every smokescreen they possibly can. They try to complicate it. They try to throw in uh, puzzles and try to trick Jesus and try to find, like, defame him. And they're completely opposed to him. So they're kind of the hardest against Jesus. Then there are this other group that are well-meaning, but they don't really get it. For example, Jesus' own family. Did you realize it's his biological family? That's what I love about Mark's storytelling. He doesn't really censor things. Like, if I was telling the story of Jesus, I may have left out the part where his biological family thinks he may be losing it a little bit with his ministry. Like, in Mark chapter 3, and you could, if you're one of those people that want to check everything I say, you could turn there and check it out, or just listen, because I'm going to read it. Mark 3, 20 and 21, it's, it's middle of Jesus' like thumping ministry. It says he went home and a crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. So Jesus's ministry, his movement is just getting legs of its own and it's bigger than anyone in the small town of Nazareth would have ever expected. And what does it say? His family heard about it. They went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. That's like, remember that? Mary, did you know 
Let your baby boy. Remember that song? I'll sing the whole thing if I need to. Okay, remember that song, Christmas song? Well, apparently Mary was confused at this point, right? Like she had maybe, she treasured that stuff in her heart, as Luke tells us she did, but life happens, and you kind of forget, and you go, wait, was this what's supposed to happen? Is he okay? Are you eating enough, Jesus? Right? Put some sunscreen on. Gather him up and say he's kind of, so there's his family. And then in Luke 6, I mean, uh, Mark 6, he comes home to his hometown in Nazareth, and they go, dude, we know you. Like, we know all about you. We know who you are, meaning we know who, where you came from. Therefore, we could define you, put you in a box, and dismiss you. And they, they don't get it either. So there's that group of people. And then there are his disciples, which are kind of like honor roll students that are really trying to get, but they're trying to get in that A minus. You know, they're really working hard and often kind of flunking out on certain tests. And this crew of people, they see Jesus in Mark 5, uh, in Mark 4, calm a giant storm. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? The next chapter, Jesus, like, casts out an impure spirit that had seized and destroyed the life of a man. And no one was able to deal with this guy. And Jesus rolls up with the authority he has and just, boom, spiritually dominates the moment. And the disciples are like, whoa, who is this? And then it continues on. Now, Mark 8, this is the part I will read for you. It's, it's a critical climax in Mark, Jesus is now right with his disciples, honorable students, people who should get it, who, I mean, these are, first of all, dudes in the ancient patriarchal Mediterranean world. They're dudes, so they're already kind of like the ones that could have a little more power and, and, and enjoy some authority. They're also with Jesus all the time, and he asks them a question. Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on throughout villages to Caesarea Philippi, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So now let's get back. To, now, Mark, notice how Mark, the storyteller, brings us back to this question of Jesus' identity. So who do people say I am? Let's talk about all them first. And then I'll come talk about y'all. And he says, you're Je they say, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're a prophet. And then he says, but who do you say I am? Who do y'all think I am? And Peter jumps up, right? This is a fun story. Peter jumps up, he kind of skips up, and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one, God's agent to bring salvation to Israel and, and the world. You're the guy. And it's like, cool, A student, that's your UCLA acceptance letter right there. You, you did it. Good job, Peter. And then Jesus says, okay, you think you know who I am. You think you understand what Messiahs do. Now let's go a little bit further with this. And then he describes to them, he began to teach, verse 31, that the Son of Man, that's a messianic title, must suffer many things. And Peter's like, okay, suffer. So maybe like you're going to get in a scuffle with the Romans, maybe break a fist in, in like a fist fight, but that's it. You should see the other guy, right? So I could get suffering. There might be a little suffering. I get it. All right, you're going to be, he says, the Son of Man will be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and all the teachers of the law. Now you could picture, like, Peter a little more uncomfortable. He's like, all of them? I mean, I know those guys are jerks, but, like, everyone's going to kind of, like, the, the scholarly consensus is going to be that you're not who you say you are? That's kind of troubling. And then Jesus takes it even further, explaining who he is. And he said, and that the Son of Man must be killed, and after three days, rise again. And at this point, it's like the record scratch in the movie, right? And Peter's like, wait, what? die 
No one said anything about Messiah's dying. Like, read through the Isaiah scroll, maybe skipping Isaiah 53. Read through that thing, and look what Messiah does. Read through the Psalms, and look what the anointed one of God does. I'm telling you, Jesus. And then it says, Jesus takes, I mean, Peter takes Jesus aside. Can you imagine this? Takes Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, yeah, I got to rebuke you. And it says he rebukes Jesus. He's like, Jesus, naughty shame. You're doing the wrong thing. You're saying the wrong things. So now Peter is entering that category of those who totally aren't getting it yet. He's so close, but like a math problem, right? You could be super close, but if it's the wrong math problem, the rocket ship doesn't enter orbit. Ray can explain that to you if you need any, any questions on thermodynamics and engineering. So it's, it's so close and he misses it. He misses it. And then the story continues. Jesus explains again, no, you don't understand. I'm going to have to die. Messiah, that is God's agent of salvation, God's presence with us, did not come to this earth to just dominate and exercise a power and a privilege. I came to serve. I came to suffer. And that's what it means to follow me. You're going to have to be willing to go through the furnace of suffering with me. And, and it says, Mark 9, uh, 32, but they did not understand what he meant and now they're afraid to ask him about it. Like, I don't want to look stupid. I really don't know what you're talking about. They didn't have a category. They were so certain about what Jesus should be doing in their lives. They were so sure of it. They didn't even have a category for anything that didn't fit that box. Now, I'm glad none of us ever suffer with that. I never do. I'm always really open to God's work in my life. I'm always saying, God, whatever you will. And then I'm like, God, why? Why'd you allow that to happen? Why'd you do that? Why didn't you give me this at that time? This is one of those great principles that's buried here in Mark's story of Jesus' life that to me it's nothing fancy or sexy or like, wow, that's huge. But it's so true, which is if you're too certain about what God is going to do in your life, if you're so certain your theology is so perfect and tight or your assumptions about your life, your control is so good and you're sure about what God's going to do, you, you're most likely going to probably miss something. Something beautiful that he might be doing. Something hard he might be inviting you into that's going to have a great outcome. And then you go through the story, Mark 14, the last lines. These are the disciples. Mark, Mark 14, 50 to 51. This is when Jesus is now captured and he's taken away to stand a, an illegal trial with the Jewish Sanhedrin uh, leaders of, of um thought life and some politics in Israel and then he will stand trial with the Romans and it says the disciples all left him and fled like a short verse Mark 14 50 maybe the saddest verse in all the Bible and all they all left him and fled and then it adds one detail Mark adds a detail of a young man who followed with him, Jesus who was a Jesus follower a disciple he had nothing but a linen cloth on his body and those who captured Jesus seized this young man so you're coming too but this young man left the linen cloth and ran away naked, right? It's like so desperate to make distance between him and Jesus. He's willing to be shamed and run naked to get away from him. It's a dark moment of where, where some people that really should have understood, in my opinion, in your opinion, and in Mark's opinion, should maybe have seen what Jesus was up to that totally missed it. And it can be real discouraging. And then comes this beautiful moment. Um... This woman, who doesn't, Mark doesn't give her a name, Matthew doesn't give her a name. Later we find out in John that it's, it's Mary, the 
uh, sister of Martha and the brother of Lazarus, a relative of Lazarus. And Mark 14, this is the last passage I'm going to read. Verses 3 through 9. We'll we'll start from 1. Now the Passover and festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. This is the Passover festival. Israel's packed. It's it's like Coachella for Israel. Everyone's there camping out on the grass. It's a big, old, fat deal. And it was two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people might riot. People riot for various reasons, and this would be one of the reasons they were afraid would happen. While Jesus was in Bethany, which is nearby Israel, I mean nearby uh, Jerusalem, reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, this unnamed woman, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Now this, I've preached a sermon here on Luke 7 where something kind of similar happens. This moment is a woman taking an alabaster jar of what would be her life savings. Like we're not, you don't invest in like a, a Robin Hood account in the ancient world, right? You're not buying a bunch of AMC to the moon. Nobody, okay. You're not doing that. You're investing in commodities often. You're storing things up. And so for a woman like this, having this much of an expensive commodity of perfume, when things get tight and desperate, she could dip into it and sell some of it. And it was sort of like a a retirement fund. And she sees Jesus. She makes her way to him. And she breaks this thing open. Like, no turning back now. If you've ever done demo, I've been doing demo this week a little bit. It's like, okay, no turning back. Boof. She breaks it open, and she dumps it on Jesus. Can you imagine the smell of that room? Can you imagine the sight? For those of you that are more financially minded, can you imagine sort of the calculations you're making? Oh, my goodness, every drip that's flowing down his beard right now could pay for a week's worth of Chipotle. Like, this is really, really expensive. She goes all in. Some of those present were indignant to one another why this waste of perfume what are you doing this is ridiculous it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor right that's a fine sentiment that's a that's a nice thing to do selling money and giving to the poor i don't know how many of those dudes in there were willing to do that if this lady gave them the perfume okay cool we'll now give it to the poor i'm not sure But that was their argument. That was their logic to indict her and say what you've done is unsensible and a waste. And you probably should be ashamed of yourself. Jesus doesn't need this right now. And then they rebuked her harshly. They rebuked her harshly. And what does Jesus say? I love Jesus, the protector. I love Jesus, the first one to put his hand in front of someone that has taken heat. Or that is in danger. Jesus is the first person to put his arm in front of someone who's ostracized and on the margins. If I could just dare to challenge all of us, and myself included, should Jesus' followers be also the first community to put their arm in front of vulnerable populations? Should we be the first ones to go, no, uh uh-uh. Not while I stand here will I allow this group to go unheard and marginalized and forgotten. It's a beautiful thing Jesus does, and he does it a lot. He puts his arm in front, and he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. 
Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. She has done something so beautiful for me. Verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand. Why? To prepare me for burial. Somehow this woman was cued up enough to the life of Jesus and to the movements of the Messiah that she saw what was coming and it wasn't going to be pretty. In a number of days, Jesus is going to be exposed to all kinds of terribleness. Terribleness. And she takes a moment of lavish outpouring and says, I'm going to anoint you so richly. You're going to smell so good. Right now, you're going to get the kingly treatment that I know you deserve. Because in a couple of days, it's going to be very dark, and you're going to be very alone up there. And Jesus says, it was a beautiful thing. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a beautiful moment. An unnamed woman in Mark's gospel who gets no lines, who gets ten verses maybe, gets the highest praise Jesus has given any human being in the entire fourfold gospels. What she has done is so beautiful. She, she just went all in. Here are the things I would encourage myself and all of us to chew on. Prepare to be surprised at those who really get Jesus. Like I'm talking now to maybe Christian folks that have been in the Christian world for a lot of time. Or folks that have not and have always said well i'm not a good person i don't really like reading the bible it's boring to me or i have a bad past you don't even know what i have done or what has been done to me i'm not that person that's for those squeaky clean pastors wearing diet coke hats with racing stripes on the side of their head that's right i did that myself it's not me if that's who you are or you know someone or you're someone that you look at maybe a neighbor or a friend or a family member and you go, it's way too far gone for this person. What a sad thing. And you lament it. I want us to hear this story and remember, there, it's often the most unlikely people that Jesus looks at and goes, that is gorgeous what you're doing. And I actually think about this a lot. This is one of those sort of thought exercises I go through. Because like you, I typically, I don't know if it's like a thing because I'm American. I don't know what it is, but I like bigger and profound. I like change the world, people. I get excited about hearing conference speakers who are the ones that are like, I started this ministry with 10 people, and now there's 10,000 people, 17 campuses across the world. We're broadcasting. You're like, oh, baby, they really grew that thing. I like the big, I was speaking at a church Recently in San Diego, this church is a huge campus. Like a, it's like a mini mall. The whole thing's a mini mall. I'm walking on the campus going, oh, my goodness. I, like, I, I told them, you have to excuse me. I normally speak on a beach, so I'm a little, like, mesmerized right now at this giant, wow, right? I get excited about that kind of stuff. Who are the world changers out there? What if, Je- what if we could hear from Jesus right now? We said, Jesus... It's not the second coming. It's like the first and a half coming. He just comes on down, swoops down to our beach service, and we hand him the mic. And we say, Jesus, we want you to tell us, are there some other people like this woman right now in the world that have done something so extravagant and beautiful? 
Now, I might expect a list of heroes, of like just superpower people, like they're doing great things, changing the world. And what if he said, oh, yeah, there's this incredible 16-year-old. She's kind of finding her way in the world. She's not quite sure of herself yet. She's thinking about me a little bit, and she, her heart's growing in relationship. But she checks in on her elderly neighbor every day, just checks in on her and says, how are you doing? Brings her flowers sometimes, takes her trash cans in. And what if Jesus goes, that's, that's so beautiful. Yeah, but Jesus, look at this campus over here. It's huge. Look at these political influencers that are really getting legislation jammed through in the name of Jesus. And he goes, that's, that's, that's okay, cool. But, but there's this other, this other amazing, like, he's a junior high boy, seventh grade. You know how that is. It's insecure a little bit, but he's kind of cool. And instead of using that coolness to build a platform for himself, he makes it a point to sit with kids at lunch that don't have anyone sitting with them. And I look at that, and my heart is just overwhelmed with gratitude, Jesus would say. And it's a beautiful thing he's done. And I celebrate it. Or you might pull someone up and say, look at this person, Jesus. Can we just pray for her? Because, boy, she has gone through some gross stuff. And I don't know. <laughs> There's going to be scars in her life, Jesus. There's going to be a long journey of healing for her. And, you know, if only she could just sit the bench at church, maybe. You know, we'll put her in, you know, outfield when we're way ahead. And Jesus might look at this woman and say, oh, you don't even know. I see I see the beautiful person she is, and I see where she's going. And I'm telling you, it's gorgeous. Like, when you start thinking like this, I encourage all of you to do that. With the hardest person in your life, or the saddest story. And as a parent, sometimes you, you get, like, I was telling my daughter last night, sometimes I'm afraid that, what if you go into high school, and you get crazy, and you, you party, and it's all nuts, and, I, and, and you walk away from Jesus, right? It can be kind of scary. Like, oh, no. What if a kid has a hard journey? And Jesus can stand before us and go, yeah, what if they have a hard journey? And that journey is going to lead them closer to me than you could ever have imagined. And it will be through the furnace of pain and suffering and hardship that they're going to be so close to me and do things that are so beautiful. And so this whole story of this unnamed woman, to me, it opens up a whole horizon of looking at the world differently. The cynicism is not a Jesus thing. It is a foreign object. It is a rust it is a coercive power that obviously a lot of engines in this world feed on. Cynicism is not something from Jesus. Suspicion is not something from Jesus. Wide-eyed optimism. Seeing the best in other people. Looking through the ugly appearances and seeing the gorgeous thing that this person has begun. This is Jesus' stuff. And so women like this, and she's not alone, they show up a lot. Uh, the last thing I want to close with and uh, reflecting on this woman's life. When we see Jesus, uh, when we see Jesus working, like if you see Jesus doing something in your life, rather than trying to guide him, like I try to guide my Rhodesian Ridgeback who is terribly, he ate a whole pizza last night. He got into an entire pizza. He ate like eight slices of Costco pizza last night. National, my dog. I try to try to guide him away. Like, oh, come on, Jesus. Come on over here. Nope, no, 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 no. Over here, over here. River Church, that's where you got to be do. You got to be moving. You got to move here and only here. This is the spot. 
And Jesus is like, well, I'm doing something, but I'm also doing something over here. Instead of us as a church or as individuals trying to coerce Jesus to do things in our life on our timeline the way we want to, what if we changed our posture completely and said, okay, Jesus, we want to watch and see where you're working and then just dump ourselves there. Like, okay, spidey senses are tingling. Jesus is moving over here in a powerful way. It's kind of obvious. People see it. Let's dump ourselves there. Let's invest so lavishly like this woman who breaks up her life savings and dumps it on Jesus because she saw where he was going, and she said, I'm going all in in that direction. Close with one of the coolest stories. Um, Y'all know Theo Windorf, amazing, just amazing dude. Uh, I've known him since he was nine years old like a crazy rad kid and he's now an adult um, married amazing guy but in high school he was kind of like the guy that like everyone wanted to hang out with it was like Theo he had his he had his green VW van and like a parade of people wanting to hang out with him and if you know him you remember those eras those times right just hippie living up there on the hill with like with this huge he could be invited to he was invited to every party he could go to uh, it, that that was happening he had his 16th birthday party and he really i mean it he could have invited like all the a-listers just all of them straight down the line on the hill in the beach cities all the coolest kids would be there and be stoked to be there he throws his party and he has a bunch of the a-listers so to speak a lot of the cool kids are there. They want to be there with Theo. He invited everyone. I was cooking hot dogs with Todd on the grill. We actually started a grease fire. It was kind of scary for a minute. Me and Todd are not, I guess, hot dog cookers. And I'm serving plates to these kids. And I'm, again, I'm a youth, I was a youth pastor. You kind of know. I promise you, half the kids there, this might be the one party they were invited to the entire year. All the rest of them, they knew were happening. They were not on the list. Because Theo just opened up his heart and goes, I'm just kind of all in. So if Jesus was about including people, then I'm going to be about including people, period. And guess what? This is the secret that I think the woman got that we're reading about. And this is the secret I know Theo gets and got. Is It's actually an amazing adventure. It's actually so much fun. Once you break that bottle of perfume, once it's broken and there's no turning back, it's a rush, baby. It's a thrill. It's a thrill. <laughs> Ursuline Beavers fostered over 100 kids in Los Angeles County. She's featured in HBO's movie documentary, Foster Ursula Beavers, one of the coolest human beings on the planet. She just sees a problem and goes, I'm just going to bring in as many kids as I can house. I have rooms, and I'm going to love them like crazy and lavishly. And I promise you, you watch interviews with her, she is not living a bo boring life. It's a hard life. It's a lot of pain involved. She's inviting a lot of pain. But she looks and goes, this is what it's about. So this unnamed woman, I just look at people like her and I go, dude, that's where I want to be. Jesus, where are you working? I want to go all in there. I want to break that bottle if I have to and go all in. And that's the adventure. That's the beauty of following Jesus. Okay, I'm well over 25 minutes, so I've I'm never hitting that record again. Obama closing prayer. And uh, Amanda's coming up here, someone who also knows what it's about going all in for Jesus and Tess as well. And uh, we're going to close with some songs of worship. And, and maybe it's a time of reflection for all of us, for me. Um, maybe like just one little tiny itty-bitty point that was made today kind of sunk in. And that's what you want to sort of just marinate in right now.
um, and and then we're gonna close off in worship. So Lord, thank you so much. Thank you, God, that like you don't look at people the way I look at people. You don't look at the face and the profile and the accounts and the normalness or weirdness. You just look at these precious creatures that you have made, that you have shaped and formed, and you see in them something that I just so often miss. Thank you for this story of this woman. That when everyone else was so confused, she just was patient enough to see what you're up to. Show us where you're working, God, and give us the courage to go all in when you call us to go all in. Jesus, do this as your followers and those here curious about you. Amen. stand and sing with us.
Thank you that your love melts the hardest of hearts. Lord, we thank you that your love is so gentle and so sweet to us. And this morning, Lord, we just say another blessing and a thank you to Tess. Just the gentleness and the beauty of her voice reminds me of your love, Lord. And I'm just so overwhelmed with thankfulness of who you are, what you've done, and even in Tess's life, Lord. And Lord, as just a church family, we bless her to go on to this next season of life. We just come around as the family of God and we say, go for it, Tess. Go bring Jesus to the University of Michigan. So Lord, we thank you for the special time as family that we could come together, feel your love, feel your goodness, and respond in worship. So we pray all these things in your wonderful, beautiful name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is Tess's last Sunday, so I don't know if you caught that, but that's why we gave her some extra love. So yeah, what a beautiful <laughs> worship leader you are, Tess. We love you. Love you all. We'll hopefully be back at Malaga Cove next week, but we loved worshiping with you here at this beautiful beach. So have a great day, y'all. We'll see you next week.